HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of Pizza Quest. This episode was recorded on location in Atlantic City during this year's Northeast Pizza and Pasta and Bakery Expo. Over the course of two days, I got the chance to interview a number of luminaries in the pizza and baking world, deliver educational presentations, and talk to the judges at both the pizza and the bagel competitions. We couldn't have covered this event without the help of our underwriters, and this episode was sponsored by Lloyd Pans. Lloyd Pans is a U.S. manufacturer of equipment and bakeware for the pizza, food service, restaurant, and baking industries. Learn more about Lloyd Pans at lloydpans.com. That's L-L-O-Y-D-P-A-N-S dot com. In this episode, we meet with Fred Mortati, president of Orlando Food Sales, who's most well known for introducing Caputo flour to the American marketplace, as well as many other fine imported Italian food products. Fred tells us the whole story here on Pizza Quest. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Peter Reinhardt. I'm coming to you right now from the Northeast Pizza and Pasta and Bakery Expo in Atlantic City, New Jersey, one of a number of episodes that we're going to be uh, generating here at the show. And I'm sitting with Fred Mortati, who is the, uh, uh, what would you say, this, the, this, the CEO, the, the, the head guy at Orlando Foods, which is one of the companies that I know from the show. I know him only, mostly from the show because, and my association is that you're the company that that brought Caputo flour to America, as well as many, many other really fine Italian products. So, Fred, for those people who don't know about Orlando Foods, can you fill us in a little bit uh, about what, you're, what you guys do, what's your mission, and, uh, and some of the products that you've, you've brought to our shores? Oh, thank you. And uh, first off, let me congratulate you, Peter, on the new book that's coming out thank and you so all much. the great work you've done inside our industry over the years, um, both educating people through Johnson & Wales to become culinary experts and you know f- for us our I think always improving food quality in America I think that's uh, that's something that's easy to be passionate about and um, yeah, and, and I think everything that you've been doing uh, is uh, is inspirational so congratulations but, and, 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 by and meeting people like you uh, Fred also I, I learned so much I mean I'm, I, I get to teach stuff but I I'm always trying to learn new things and like like over the years that I've known you and some of the events that you've taken me to, some of the, so I would say the parties that your company has thrown <laughs> where I've gotten to meet yeah. some, some really important people in the industry. You know, I keep sucking up all sorts of new ideas and knowledge. So I thank you for yeah. that and for what you guys bring to the industry. Yeah, thank you. So um, Orlando Foods, we're actually a third generation importing company. It was started by my grandfather wow. after World War II when uh, he felt he had, he had come here um, you know, 15 years before that, um, and he had realized that there was kind of a lack of Italian food in the States. And so he started importing kind of some of the traditional diets that, you know, that people in Italy were having and what he thought missed here. Certain kinds of cheese, tomatoes, olive oil, anchovies, and things of that was nature. Was he a first-generation guy? Had he moved so over he, from Italy? He came here when he was in his 20s, actually. Wow, his, his name... His name was Charlie Orlando. Charlie, Charlie Orlando. It's funny because he went by Charlie, literally, Char- wow. with this heavy Italian accent. Um, that was my mom's dad. 
And um, he had Where from Italy did he come? He came from Palermo. And, oh, uh, oh he, from Sicily, huh? Yeah, he came from Sicily, and he came here specifically to help his sister get to Detroit, where she was betrothed <laughs> oh, wow. to a gentleman who... Uh, who was from uh, you know from an appropriate family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right. uh, and, and, and they were they were actually in the pasta business ah. um, in uh, in Detroit. Perfect. And uh, so he started importing goods. He met my grandmother, um, who was from uh, a similar town town close to his in Sicily, uh-huh. and they uh, married and moved to New York. And they had uh, they had three children: my mom and two boys. And eventually, um, the two boys did come into the business and took it over. And um, at some point, one of this one of those two sons went in one direction of fitness, and the other one kept doing food. Wow! Wow! And the son in food, my uncle, that was uh, was Orlando Foods at the time when uh-huh. I came out of college uh-huh. uh, as an economics major. Um, I went to see him before I graduated, about six months before, and I said, "Look, I'm studying international uh, business. I'm studying economics. I don't really know what you do. Can I <laughs> can I have a job?" Yeah. Yeah. And he said, sure, take a week off after you graduate and come, come to work. Well, for a family to have a family member want to come into the business is a pretty big news. Yeah. And, and you know, they were just a couple of people, and they were importing goods and selling food distributors, and it was primarily going into the restaurant. The goods they sold went to distribution that eventually ended up in restaurants or maybe like Italian markets. Uh-huh. That was, uh, I joined in 1988. I got out of college. And for... For a few years, um, a few years later, my cousin, uh, his son, my first cousin, Carlo uh, Orlando, he then was out of school. He was uh, getting a master's. He saw that I was enjoying working with his dad, and he wanted to then come and work with his dad as well. Nice. And so uh, we were very lucky as young men, you know, in our late 20s, his dad and his dad's partner, they kind of, there were a lot of changes going on, and they didn't want to, they didn't. They wanted to transition the company. Uh-huh. And so we found ourselves being told, great, you guys are the next generation. You can take it over. You could buy us out. And we said... The basically they're saying, thank God you're here because yeah. we're ready to course, pass it on. Of course, we said, like, well, that's great, but we don't have any money. So we don't understand how this works. But, um, but you know, you fast forward and we really had these strong ties with Italy. And, you know, being Italian-American, you kind of fall in love with at least I did this concept of working with the land where your parents were from and where their where yeah, your grandparents yeah. are from. And I can tell you anybody who goes to Italy always come back and says one thing. Oh my god, the food. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It just seems to be universal yeah. and it seems to be a place that people really enjoy and so that really showed me like it's a nice environment to work in. There's one thing that they're truly dedicated and it's their food culture. And so we started um, working with a few companies that were looking to kind of grow their brands in America mm. at the time. And one of those companies was a flower company called Caputo. And, uh, Which I at actually, that time really was unknown to most Americans. Yeah, it was, it was not. They, well, they didn't sell in the U.S. and there was no real request for a double zero flower. Uh-huh. But um, I had met a gentleman who became my mentor. Uh, he owned a tomato factory called Chow. Chow Tomatoes. Oh, yeah. And he was kind of like my big brother. And he was 20, he's 20 years older than me. He's my best friend and my mentor to this day. Wow. And he really helped me start to understand who the players were, how to kind of navigate the waters over there better. And, um, and, and you know, was kind of the guy, you know, we all as young men, we need someone behind us pushing us. Right, right. And he was that guy behind me pushing me. And when I got a phone call one day from a large food distributor in America who was a good friend of mine, they, they asked me for this flower caputo because one of their customers had just done some research and spent, sent a team to Naples. Uh, and, you know, I'm talking about in the mid-90s, so yeah. like almost 20 years yeah. ago, um, when that was a little more rare. Today it's very common. And they came back and said, we need to, in order to open our restaurant, we need a red bag and a blue bag and the name's Caputo. And so we found the company, we found the mill, and uh, I called them and I told them, look, uh, I have some some need for your product. We have people who wanna start start buying this, so we need to import it. And they were very cynical. Really? You know, America is, you know, second largest producer of wheat in the world. Yeah. After Russia, uh, 
they've said, why? I mean, America, you guys produce so much, and he probably thought he was going to take his advantage of us. So he said, if you send money, I'll send flour. <laughs> right. So I said, okay. So I called my tomato partner, my yeah, buddy. Yeah. See. Can you help me source this? Can you bring the guy a check? He's down the street. And um, So having that first partner, that tomato partner in Italy, it kind of was a, was a link and a bridge to, to the flour. Yeah. Uh, just to show you how long ago it was, there was no Google. He actually said, I actually called, I called, my, I called my, my mentor, my partner there, Lino, and I said, Lino, open the phone book and find the name Caputo in Naples. <laughs> right. That's how, I, that's how I got the phone number. That's, um, that's, yeah, it's hard to, we, most people can't even think pre, pre-Google and pre-internet, yeah. but, but it wasn't that long ago. It's, you said early 90s, mid-90s? Yeah. And yeah. so we, we, I went and I met the family amazing people. Auntie Mokaputo is one of my best friends today. And we just began sometime in the late 90s. After a few years of like trying to understand the product a little bit, and we had this great business on tomatoes, and we were doing a nice business with cheese and oils and some other products. And we were starting to realize that like Italian food generally was... um, only in the hands of like the Italian people that were restaurateurs, uh-huh. right? Yeah. That was like the real, that was really the focus of our industry. But things were starting to change. And, uh, you know, by 2000, we had, uh, you know, the internet, people yeah. could research things and yeah. learn a little more. And we started changing our strategy also as a company. And, um, you know, our, our mission is we want to bring Italian flavors to our neighbors. I'll go back to what I said before. People go to Italy, come home and say, oh, my God, the food. Yeah, yeah. And so we just felt like pride, opportunity, culture. We understand the culture. We speak the language. Yeah. Um, and, and so having the American culture, the Italian culture, uh, and bringing those two things together, we kind of act as a conduit yeah. and, and a vehicle to... You're kind of democratizing Italian flavors and the Italian experience. Yeah. And today, the beauty of it is, if I really think about what my last 20-year journey has been, because yeah. I'll go back to 2002, the first time I went to the Pizza Expo with Auntie Mocaputo and, yeah. and two pizza makers from Naples, um, to today, this t- past 20 years has been, to me, historic because it's been the complete evolution of what artisan pizza in America has become. Yeah. And, you know, you've been all along kind of the guy, one of the people documenting that. Yeah. Yeah. It was good timing for all of us to to get in early on that. Yeah. It's been extraordinary to see because the quality that's there now in any city you go to, you can find something that just didn't exist 15 and 20 years ago. Right. Probably in some cases, not even 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and then so you've been driving. You one of the players driving that, you know, filling the need. There's a need that was growing. You, you filled that need. Uh, you probably have seen a, uh, a rise in competition of other people who want to fill that need that you helped to create, that you helped to generate it there in the early days. Yeah, quite a bit. Um, and we always tell our team, like, first of all, and I'll tell everything. We're very friendly with a lot of different competitors. There's people who import uh, other products. There's people in the U.S. that produce fine products yeah. uh, as well. America's a very big producer of tomatoes and of flour, of course. They produce more than Italy does on both items. Um, I always joke that we don't do anything easy, right, because we bring we bring tomatoes and flour to the largest producing country in the world oh, oh, of tomatoes, tomatoes and flour. And flour so, right, right. Uh, but there are absolute subtle differences for people looking to split hairs. We are all about education. Um, I've, got, I've got three kids, so I can tell you I know education is expensive. Yeah. And we say that in our business as well. Education is expensive. We spend a lot of time and resources to bring, um, to bring I guess, an educational component to the pizza world and the Italian food world, right? Because... Uh, a lot of what they do in Italy is is different. Uh, again, culture is different, but a lot of their technique and how they produce food is different than what we do in the States. Really? Um, and so we kind of try to show people that, look, in some cases, very subtle, uh-huh. but we like to split hairs. And so we work inside those nuances and subtleties. Can you give me food. some examples of, uh, of some uh, diff- the way it's different, how it's done yeah. differently? Um, I'll talk to you about tomatoes quickly. So when we harvest tomatoes in Italy, the variety of tomato we grow is uh, softer than the variety of tomato that we grow generally here in the U.S. You mean even if it's the same 
type of tomato or grows it's differently. Totally different? Yeah, it grows differently because it grows of differently. Where it's from. Uh, the seeds can be different, mm -hmm. and we can't put them. So they we have to put them inside um, these bins uh -huh. from the field. So they get automatically harvested. They get put into bins, uh -huh. and in all the other tomato producing countries and regions in the world, they use the carriers that they put the tomatoes in are almost like small dump trucks. Oh. Okay? And so we can't do that. Our, our fruit would get too damaged. Because and it's softer to begin with. It's softer yeah, to begin with. Yeah. And also, the product that we're bringing in is primarily a peeled whole tomato. And so the difference between getting something that's already crushed or concentrated, where you don't actually see the fruit as it originally yeah. began, yeah. as yeah. a peeled whole tomato, Right. We have to make sure that they're perfect that when they're they not, get yeah. from the field and look in order to go well in the can. As, yeah, there, there's there's a visual as well. You're absolutely so now, right. So these tomatoes, the, the Chow Tomato brand, but for those who are not familiar with it or are listening, um, is it would it fall in the same category as what now we everyone seems to know about San Marzano? Is it a type of San Marzano tomato, or is it a different type altogether? Yeah. So it it grows out. So the kind of tomato that that is grows out of what a San Marzano seed was developed for. So San Marzano seed is a kind of tomato that is very, very long, mm -hmm. very skinny, and super sensitive. Uh -huh. And that was what was grown in and around the Naples region yeah. uh, for hundreds of years. That was what was introduced. Effectively, that was brought from South America by Columbus back, back to Italy. Europe. Yeah, wow. And uh, they were ornamental plants. They were yellow. They weren't red. And they didn't. They no, thought they were poisonous, and they couldn't That's eat them. That's right. Yeah, they were viewed so, as dangerous. Uh, uh, so again, cross pollination. Yeah. So over time, this develops, and San Marzano became the item that was done around Naples, and they were canning them. And it used to be done by hand, but that's not extremely efficient. You need, you know, right. an army of people to do that. And with time and technology, that item always existed and lived, and it still lives today. We produce uh, authentic San Marzano tomatoes. DOP is the European expression, denomination of protected origin. However, it's a very, very limited production. It only represents one half of 1% of the total production. And that's because the region where you're allowed to grow them, which is only a few towns in the foothills of Mount Vesuvius yeah. around Naples, the, uh, it's very closely controlled. That region is very small. You can only get a certain quantity grown. I think uh, lately, if people have been watching that Stanley Tucci series, there's a, that one episode where he goes to this little little yes. tomato farm, you know, with Mount Vesuvius behind him, and and he's eating the supposed the the true San Marzano. The true San Marzano, and it's like tiny little postage stamp of a farm. Yeah, and they're they're really they're small. They all have to be picked by hand. The plants take a huge amount of TLC, um, and then during production, they're extremely sensitive. So actually, the yield is not very good. It, it's you have to go very slowly and carefully. You damage them too much, and they end up breaking. They don't get in the can. Um, so it's a small quantity of production. They're really awesome. There is a absolutely a subtle flavor profile difference between that and uh, the standard whole peeled. We call them Roma variety. Oh, Roma. Okay. okay. So, that, so Roma is a bigger sort of category yeah. that, of which they fall under, though. Yes. Okay. And so they're also long. They're very long. Uh -huh. They tend to be more narrow. Um, they have a certain flavor profile that is different than a round tomato. Uh, the rest of the tomato growing world generally grows round tomatoes. In fact, northern Italy, which represents half of the... If you, if you divide Italy in two and draw a line through Rome, above Rome is almost exclusively long tomatoes, and below Rome is primarily long tomatoes. Oh, round tomatoes above round, Rome. Round, round above Rome. Yeah. Rome and, and the, and the north of Italy is half of the... Italian production. Yeah. But in north of Italy, they don't do a lot of whole peeled. In fact, they do virtually no whole peeled. They do all crushed tomato sauces, purees, tomato paste. Uh-huh. Um, looks, it's very similar in industry style to like California probably. Yeah. Um, in the south of Italy, much more artisans. Small factories, mid-sized factories, uh, 80 factories that do... 50% of Italian production. In the north, they have 10 factories that do 50% of the Italian yeah, production. Yeah, just bigger scale just, just, altogether. Yeah. yeah, different style. So so, the, so, so if, I, if I can yeah. uh, extract a little bit of what I uh, take away was, one, not uh, San Marzano tomatoes are a type of Roma, but not all Romas are San Marzanos. Is that correct? No, San Marzanos is its own specific it's, seed. Oh, it's its own seed. It's different it's from seed. a Roma. 
different okay. aroma and has and has different characteristics. Um, and that represents one half of one percent of the production of, of all peeled tomato. I see. And then the peeled tomato itself is a little more robust. I see. It's uh it's it's a it's a little more substantial. It doesn't if you if you pick up a tomato out of a can, the San Marzano one will literally break in your hand. Mm -hmm. Literally will break in your hand. Yeah. And the other one won't. Now do you carry both types then? Or? We produce both. Both types. Um, but we're just limited in the amount we can produce on San Marzano. San Marzano, because yeah. it's not. The but we, we have customers who want them. They do cost quite a bit more because the cost to produce them is much higher. The cost to buy those from the f farmers is much higher. Uh, so, but for those people that you know really insist on having the authentic tomato from Naples, that's that's it. Well, if you go to a supermarket, there's a brand called San Marzano tomatoes, but th but it doesn't sound like those tomatoes that are called San Marzanos in the store are the same as the San Marzanos you're talking about, which are more artisan. No, because in America, we don't have a standard of identity. So in the U.S., to use the word San Marzano that doesn't have a standard of identity and say, hey, the San Marzano style yeah, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, you can um, get away with a lot of You can get away fudging. with it. Yeah, yeah. In Europe, it's heavily, heavily regulated because it's a DOP product. So it's kind of like saying um, in Europe, feta cheese has a DOP, Parmigiano-Reggiano. Yeah. Prosciutto di Parma, um, you know, traditional balsamic vinegar. Those are heavily, heavily regulated to produce these artisan industries that follow extremely rigid yeah. standards to make a certain product. And if you want to know that that product you're buying is the same one that was made 100 years ago, that is made with the same kind of raw material, uh -huh. whether it's milk for cheese or a tomato grown in a field, um, that follows a certain procedure for, heart, for how it's processed, uh, and you can therefore have this product that has not been changed. Yeah. And this product that was the same flavor and the same style 100 years ago, that's your guarantee. That symbol from the European Union, that's your guarantee. Um, uh, yeah. They have a standard of identity. The U.S., we don't. Yeah, right, exactly. And, and they take it very serious. You know, the, 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 and, and we don't because we, don't, we haven't learned to differentiate in that, to that same point no, of, of no, and it's, uh, fineness. And it, so it gets bastardized a little bit here, yeah. unfortunately. And because uh, marketing I, will grab onto it, they'll they'll steal your your what you created two centuries of a brand to to create the, and we'll steal it if we can sell more tomatoes. You know? And and ex and we can use that word that we've read in books and we've heard about and we associate with Italy and we feel if we hear that and it says that it must be real and it must be. So there's um, there's unfortunately there is a bit of misinformation out there and probably a bit of confusion. These were great platforms talking about yeah, it because it's yeah. important to kind of dispel the myths right and, and, people and give want a little to, bit now of education. more than ever people do want to know, you know about those differences so i always didn't. tell people if you're looking for a real dop san marzano look at the can look for the symbol that says denomination of protected origin and look for the european union symbol, symbol. and if you see that you know what you're getting is authenticated well does orlando foods um, make these the products that you have available to the general public or only to the food industry so we're starting to sell these products also now, currently online. We have uh, two websites that are launching, one for flour and one for tomatoes. One's a, one is caputoflour.com and the other is chowtomatoes.com. Uh -huh. And you'll be able to have uh, purchasing right online, buy the stuff, put in your cart, right shipped to your house. Really? Um, those will be launching in the next two months. And uh, currently, those otherwise, these items are on Amazon. You can buy flour and tomatoes on Amazon. Really? And there's quite a bit of sales that happen that way. Even though we are a, you know, rush, let's say food service oriented company, we'd love consumers to get our stuff. Okay. Um, and so, uh, especially I think as we've, you know, especially as people now, again, do more research. Yeah. Uh, read your book and they want to make a better pizza. Mm -hmm. And when they do some more research to make a better pizza, they say, oh, if I want to do this artisan pizza or I like this chef, think about all the chef shows. Yeah. They follow people, and when they see that one of those guys they like, let's say uses our product, yeah. and they say, oh, I want to buy this double zero Caputo flour. How do I get it? And so we end up with a lot of trickle-down requests, like, oh, consumers in other markets want to know how to find our products. Right. And that just naturally started like this Amazon business. Well, I think now the people who are, in the, who are food savvy, just food enthusiasts, not professionals, uh, no, way more, no more way than they did. And again, maybe because the food shows but because of general desire, too, they know more than they used to know. They're, and, they're, and they're seeking out, quote, artisan, the artisan 
term has now filtered down to the mainstream, and everybody wants to be part of that scene. Uh, but um, uh, but the availability wasn't always there. Now it sounds like you're saying through distribution networks like Amazon and now your own websites, you can make products that used to be not available can now be had by almost anybody. 100%. And the, and the, the supply ease of, there? Is there enough supply? The ease it? of getting it to your house now is just, is something we're all used to. Yeah. This is kind of interesting for us because like it's a COVID effect too. There were plenty of online buyers, yeah. whether it was your supermarket, you're doing a supermarket shopping via online, et cetera. But like it's exponentially grown because of COVID. We yeah. all became used to sitting in our kitchen and ordering because we we're afraid to go out. So that's actually fueling now a whole new kind of paradigm shift in yes. how people are shopping. Yeah. And so you're not gonna be so cynical about finding our website and saying, oh, I trust this, it looks valid, I'm gonna buy this flour, I'm gonna buy this tomato, and yeah. I can well, and I can get a, something that I couldn't get before. It's a, it raises a huge question because it, the, everything's changed, the world has changed uh, just in the last couple of years dramatically, paradigm shifts, and the way people shop even. So that I can get something delivered to my door within 24 hours that, you know, I used to would have to travel across the world to try to get in the past. How's that affecting, uh, how do you see it affecting commerce in general and, 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 and the industry that you're in? So I will tell you, there's no question. These last two years have, I think for many people of uh, all walks of life have probably been some of the two most stressful years anybody ever mm -hmm. had because things change so quickly and almost day to day. And whether it was loved ones were sick or I wanted to buy something and I couldn't get it. There, there's 8,000 things that happened. Um, I think that with all these changes, one of the primary things that we started to see was difficulty in sourcing goods. Um, you know, we, we can go through all the reasons why, you know, the U.S. government um, which usually reacts faster than other governments to crises, immediately put in place a vehicle for people to feel secure by sending out you know, money, by mm -hmm. uh, making sure that companies had money to operate and pay right. their employees and all these other things. And that generated kind of, to me, this spending spree on goods when before you had a divide between goods and services. Yes. All the services shut down, yeah. all the goods became under huge request, and then all of a sudden we had you know, more demand than we had supply. Yeah. We also had shutdowns around the world of factories, and so we didn't have goods that we could get. That's right. I will tell you on our side, if the food, just the food business, we never stopped. The factories never stopped running, they never stopped producing. Um, because we have a history in importing for 30 years, and I've been dealing with the same freight companies for 30 years, we had access to containers, to vessels, to getting goods every single week. We never had a week since the pandemic started. We never had a week where we weren't shipping goods on vessels. We did 100% get hijacked and have to pay much, much more for that same space uh -huh. than we did pre-COVID. And yeah. we still are today. We're paying, we're paying between four and five times more now to move goods than we did before. Right. Although that seems like it hit the peak. Well, it looks that way. It let's looks hope. like it hit the peak and maybe it's softening. Because everyone's paying the price for I mean, that's where I, the word inflation is in everyone's tongue these days is we're dealing with everything being inflated. And, yeah. and, that's a, and the supply side is a big part of that. It had a big, it had a big effect. The transportation had a big effect. Um, now it seems like, I mean, I, I, nobody has a crystal ball. I think transportation is going to start going down. Mm -hmm. I don't think we'll go back to historical levels, but I think we're going to get some relief. Um, and I do think that while there's some challenges in the agriculture world, this year particularly was like for a few different crops, olives for olive oil, uh, wheat, tomatoes, yeah. worldwide, these were crops, artichokes, these are crops worldwide were affected by hotter climates. And they actually had worse productions in yeah. terms of total tonnage in, than a normal year. So that's forced agricultural prices up. Yeah. And uh, the war in Ukraine is like not helping. a perfect storm of problems here to drive yeah. things up. We're, we're, we're in a particular time. I would, I always think about, I think about specifically our industry. I think about artisan pizza. 
the great news, this is where we have to look for silver linings, okay? Mm -hmm. The great news is you can get ingredients, even if they're more expensive, in the scheme of the operation of running an artisan pizzeria, your food cost is generally not your most expensive cost. Uh -huh. There are other, these, these, these restaurateurs have had to deal with a lot. They've had labor increase. Labor's They've had energy it, increase. Yeah. They've had food increase. Um, and if you look at that in the scheme of things, for most of these guys to offset all their costs, they probably need to raise their prices 20%. And I always felt that if a restaurant that sells Italian or Mediterranean diet foods, which tend to be more carb-based diet than protein-based diet, if they raise their prices by 20%, and you sell $15 to $20 pasta, now you sell $18 to $24 pasta, I'm not sure that stops a consumer at all. Right. And I'm not sure, and, and you're, you're getting what you need out of it, and it's not significant. Um, I think those are the things that in difficult times, uh, like we're in and probably entering with higher interest rates in this environment, those are the things that allow this industry to remain very solid. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, thank God for that. And uh, uh, and it, it seems like when you're, it's what it's protected a lot more than certain other industries and certain other businesses for sure. Because everyone's got to eat, and as long as we can produce the food, and that was scaring me this year was, you know, when I hear reports about how how the wheat crop has been devastated in certain parts of the world, or the tomato crops, they're just not, you know, and and it seems like if it's weather related and climate related then that's not necessarily going to improve. The climate seems to be going in a particular direction also that could mean more years of lower yields and things like that. What do you, I, I'm sure you guys are forecasting that and seeing uh, or preparing for Yeah, ultimately, scenarios. you know, when I, when I look at the last, you know, 15, 20 years, um, there has been greater production uh, in certain in certain agricultural crops because there's more demand, the population's growing. There's a lot of land out there. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there's not enough land to do the farming. Um, it's generally, you know, these are markets that work on generally independence. So you need a farmer who's willing to take the risk to plant something, hoping that right. he'll be able to get his costs out right. when he goes to sell it. I think what we're going to see, because this year was one particular year where like it was the perfect storm and it all ended up short at the same time, I think we'll see a pretty big production next year. Uh, I can tell you that if I think about the artisan pizza business in the U.S. in general, not a shortage of goods. The product, there's enough product there to support that. Yeah. It's just that because there's more demand for less quantity, it just means the prices have gone up. And yeah. part of that is also because the costs to produce it have gone up. You know, in Europe, they had the yeah. crazy energy crisis. Right. Or, well, they're in the middle of it yeah. now because yeah. of the war. Yeah. And, and like you say, the cost to produce is driving and, and transportation. All those things, they all feed into it. It's not just the weather. It's not just the yield. There's so many factors. Uh, but before we run out of time, I, I, I want to take advantage of having you here to talk a little bit more about the flour that you bring in, the Caputo flour, and, and so, so, that, so that listeners who have wondered about it but haven't had access to someone like you to be able to explain it. How is it different? What makes it different? What What is this double zero even mean? And and why are there so many different colors of bags of Caputo? What do those mean? Because there's because this is this is a whole new territory. We know King Arthur. We know General Mills. We know you know the American flowers. We know the terminologies that they use. But what? How does Italian flower differentiate? And how does Caputo sort of stand out within that? Because they, they, they seem to be the dominant brand also. Yes, I, I'll tell you specifically, I kind of use one word. I say the word length. And length I relate to length of the mill. And I don't mean that specifically actually in terms of how many feet or meters uh -huh. long the mill is. Uh -huh. But it's I, deal, I, I say that in terms of the milling process. They have a milling process that passes the kernel through a much longer process to get ground uh -huh. than other mills. Oh. And because of that, that longer milling process allows them to use a much more subtle grinding technique where they're not damaging the protein or starch of the flour while is, the resulting flour. Is that unique to Caputo or is that Italian milling in general? 
So the Italian, the Italian milling in general is about two to three times, in quotes, longer okay. than the American oh, process. Oh, that's interesting. No, I didn't At know Caputo, that. At yeah. Caputo, it is two to three times longer than the general Italian uh-huh. process. So they got their own, yeah. So when you grind more slowly because you're having the kernel pass more times through the rollers because the rollers are not as close together to crush the wheat, uh-huh. as they go through more times, it more gently crushes the wheat, yeah. it more gently yeah, removes yeah. the impurity, but you can't produce as much in a day, so you have a higher cost of production, right? You have a lower yield. We're talking about really good-sized mills. Caputo has two mills, which are uh, their own specific setup, and because of that, they are able to grind uh, a, a, a vast, a very large quantity. They're a, they're a mid-sized mill. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not a large mill by any standards right. in the U.S. They're a mid-sized company, and they can maintain their artisanal nature this way. But the length and that gentle grinding process is the first thing that distinguishes them. I would tell you probably the main thing that distinguishes them is that they're going to be a company in business uh, in, ni- in 2024, they will have 100 years of business. That means for 100 years they've been sourcing wheat from yeah. all parts of the world yeah. and playing with that and working with pizza makers, pasta makers, bakers, donut makers, whoever, right. to identify what does the artisan need and then reverse engineer the flour, meaning some kernels from Kazakhstan, some from North Germany, uh-huh. from, from Italy, oh, and different characteristics, and they make a blend. And they take, for argument's sake, every bag, eight different kinds of wheat, and they put all those kernels together in a, form, in, in, in a recipe. Yeah. And the recipe could be 10% of this, and 20 of that, and 30 of this, and 15 of another. And then they take all those kernels once they're blended, and then they grind that. So the flour is completely homogeneous. I see. Yeah, and and also it allows them probably from year to year to re- maintain a certain amount of consistency, because if the wheat's changing, then they're able to adjust that blend a little bit to, to match last year. Your your expectations of last year's flour will be the same this year. That is an excellent point. It allows them through the entire year. Think about the wheat crop. Yeah. In Europe, the wheat crop's one time a year. Yeah. So. I'm for the whole year I have to be able to grind and have the same performance from my bag which means I have to always be able to adjust my recipe yeah. if the protein level changes in one area okay how am I what am I going to substitute that with so you mentioned something about why do you have different color bags so we have these eight varieties and in a certain recipe they might be perfect for making Neapolitan pizza I want flavor I want softness, I want some ostensibility, but I don't need it to be like bulletproof and really hard because I need a dough that's gonna rise relatively quickly yeah. and be really soft under cooking. Yeah. However, if I make panettone, I need something totally different. Yeah. I need something that allows a massive amount of gas production and has a huge amount of protein and resistance yes. in the gluten network. We're using the same wheats, we're changing the percentages Blends. of the recipe. I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that allows a lot of versatility because I'm not producing in an area where I'm using only a few kinds of wheat. If, if I only had a few kinds of wheat, then I might have more variability in the flour. And you as a, as a baker, pizza maker, home user, you might find some variability. Yeah. With us, you'll find less. But you also, you'd also be limited in the number of the types of applications that would be appropriate for. So you said eight different types. So what are, what are those eight types? I know we know there's a pizza flour, and and so we have we have different varieties of wheat. We make different kinds of flour for use. So we have the number one seller is the zero zero the pizzeria. Z- yeah, and it's a blue bag, and that product really works in artisan pizza. High heat works really well under high heat. However, in the U.S., we have a huge amount of pizza made in deck ovens, whether they're electric or gas, that cook for eight or nine minutes. Right. And we developed a product that we call Zero Zero Americana or Zero Zero Americana Super. And those are higher protein, yeah. more resistant doughs that allow longer rise and they are allowing a longer bake time. What's the difference between the Americana and the, and the Americana Super? The Americana Super has even more protein because oh. we found that 
when we start going into the more traditional pizza, um, I want to say, lack of a better word, New York style. We start talking about what people understand as an uh-huh, uh-huh. 18 or 20 inch yeah. round pizza yeah. cooked for 10 minutes in a deck oven um, that has a, a firmer, crispier nature to it, and you can carry a lot of ingredients. Those traditional pizzas need something with a little more, with more protein. I see. And so we've made what we feel is our Italian benefits of a double zero flour with the durability of having a dough that can kind of undergo a long cooking time and a longer rise time. It can handle, it's more, what's what we call it, tolerance. It has more tolerance. Tolerance. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, do any of these fl- uh, flour blends incorporate, um, say, like an American flour, they add often malted barley uh, enzyme, an enzyme blend to try to help promote browning. Do you use, do you use that in any of the Italian blends? We, we'd use a little bit of malted wheat in the Americana and the Americana Super, and it's only to help the color. The color, for, yeah, yeah, exactly. But we do not use, we, it's against our, let's just say culturally as a company, it's against the company's policy to use anything that are enzymes, dough conditioners, or anything else. This is all about all natural. Uh-huh. It's only about finding and producing the product with the right blend of recipe of, of wheats, of just natural wheats and only mechanically grinding them yeah. and not doing anything else to it and let that be ultimately in the hands of the pizza maker, the bread maker, the pasta maker. Okay. And we'll give you the we'll give you the product that will give you the result that you're looking for. Well, so I've heard I think I heard four different types of flowers. So some of the other ones there's got to be one that's designed for pasta. We do. We have a pasta. We have a double zero flour also called zero zero pasta fresca. And does the double zero refer to the the amount of ash or or you know the fineness of the of the sifting or what does it refer to? Yeah, so it refers to ash. So the ash content. So the more bran and germ that you remove by sifting, the f- more uh, clean the product. So this cleanest product that is just wheat. That, that, I'm sorry, that is just almost like Endosperm. the center of the yeah, kernel. Yeah. When you remove all the bran and the germ, you have this, by, by virtue of doing that, you have double zero low ash content. And that tends to be, because it's been sifted so much, it tends to be very fine. Uh-huh. So the, uh-huh. being very fine and is kind of like a byproduct of being, being a double zero. Are there some um, types of, uh, of flour that, that Caputo produces that don't, require that fineness and that they're made a single zero or less less fine. We do two other ones, in fact. We not only do a single zero, we do also a type one. So if you think about the scale, you have whole wheat, which is you're grinding the kernel. You have type one, which is kind of like, think about the picture a lot of people imagine of wheat grinding is like the stone wheel yeah. grinding up wheat kernels yeah. and having like this very rustic look to it where the flowers almost has this speckled nature to it where yeah. it still has a little bit of bran or german yeah. there. That's type one. Uh-huh. And then type zero, which has a lower ash content but still has a tiny bit of the germ. And then zero zero, where it's all removed basically. We have a type zero flower that we launched two years ago called Nuvola Super. Yes. And nuvola in Italian means cloud. And this type zero flower has become one of the largest sellers because it has a small quantity of pre-fermented wheat. So this is where the farmer leaves the wheat in the field just a little bit longer, where it just begins to ferment a little bit. And it germinates a little bit then. And, you, and then you harvest. I see. And this kind of acts for us as like a little bit of a pre-ferment. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 we think of it uh, here in the States, the, the bakeries that are doing that, they call it sprouted flour, sprouted wheat. It might be even further sprouted than what you're using, but, but the idea is just as, as it begins to germinate, and you're increasing the enzyme activity in it, which would tend to make it uh, brown more. It's like adding, it's like instead of adding enzymes, they're already there, but there's more, more, they're more active. And that, that product has a small percentage of this pre-fermented wheat. Interesting. Ah. Um, so it would be it would be quite different probably than a sprouted flower here okay. yeah. because it's again it's a small percentage yeah. of it but it took two years to develop and ultimately what we receive out of this is 
a pretty resistant protein because yeah. it's pretty high protein flour, the Nuvola Super, but extreme lightness and airiness. And that's why we named it Nuvola after cloud. The cloud, yeah. Because it tends to create these doughs that have really amazing crumb structure. And like you cut through your pizza and your focaccia and you open it up and you look inside and you have these amazing huge air so pockets. So you just answered one of the questions I was going to answer, which is what products is this is supplied to? So, so like the Roman style pizza? Roman style or pizza, or perfect. style pizzas. Yes. So that's, wow. So, so I could see why that would be a growing sector for you because that category is growing in the American pizza world as well. I'm, I'm not sure what... I think the beauty of pizza more than anything these days is that people are experiencing now and experimenting with a lot of different technique. You know, I think your background started probably on the bread side yep. before the pizza side. And like you bring all these, all this knowledge of bread making and those techniques, you start taking that into pizza yeah. making and like the clash of those two worlds. Yeah, we talked about that in one of the cool, workshops. It's the coolest thing. They're converging, these worlds are converging. And that's why there's an expo here that's not just a pizza expo, now it's a baking expo as well. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's an exciting time. I think we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg only. I keep saying that. I'm getting older. I've got gray hair. And yeah. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, you were such a kid when you started this company. We're still, we're still at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, right, right. We're still at the beginning. And, we and, are. And this yet you've, a had, you've had a chance to observe and be part of like two or three paradigm shifts over the, the 20 plus years yeah. that you've been doing it. Uh, one final question before before we, we have to call this one to a close is, um, isn't Caputo also doing a gluten-free blend as well? Or do they have a gluten-free product as well? Yes, there's a separate factory they own where they make a gluten-free blend. It's, I mean, I guess I'm biased. It's the best one I've ever seen in the world. I've heard other people say that they love it the best. Yeah. If you make gluten-free anything, cookies, bread, pizza, I don't care what it is, pasta, the, the, it, ha, it has, it, again, it took years and years and years of development to create something that doesn't have like the bitterness or the flakiness mm. of, of traditional gluten-free mixes. Um, and again, gives you a product that, it's not a wheat-based product, it's the closest thing I've ever seen though. So, and that's a, that's a sector that's growing, so obviously that product line must be growing for you as well. Yeah, quite a, quite a bit. It's been really enjoyable to watch that as well. Um, well I mean, and again, people are learning, right? People are, I think about like my kids' generation, yeah. they're label readers, they, they care about what's going in their bodies, they, they do research. Those are our best customers, and educated customers absolutely are our right, best customers. And I, and I assume that it's a proprietary blend, but can you tell us a little bit about what, what are some of the components? Because most people know gluten-free blends is rice flour, well, rice flour, so, maybe what, potato starch, sorghum, but yeah, what is Soy that? and things like that. Um, one of the key components here is a deglutinized wheat starch. So it is- Really? Yeah, so it is 100% gluten-free, just to give you an example, the FDA tolerance is five parts per million. I'm yeah. sorry, it's 20 parts per million. You can have up to 20 parts per million of a gluten. That's the still be tolerance by FDA. Yeah. We're below five. So we're, we're way below the FDA limits. Well, how um, the hell do they get the gluten out of the wheat? <laughs> that's, that's the secret. That, that's that's secret. the company secret, yeah. So, but that's probably yeah. one of the differentiators between your product and everybody else. Yeah, because it's really interesting. It actually... If you take if you make a dough ball with the gluten free product, it actually holds a little bit of air. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't, right? There's must, no gluten network. But well, you, you guys must be so excited when you see stuff like that happen. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And I know that you uh, you guys the company itself has brought over a lot of American talent to, to learn from them, but also to bring their perspective into it and and, and ask the advice of American pizza makers or bakers for as they develop new products. Um, we look at ourselves at Orlando Foods as a link between Italy and America. Um, I truly love both co countries so much. Yeah. Um, I think both countries have so much to offer. And just bringing people who love food together like that, yeah. great things happen. Many years ago, well, not that many. I, I think it was six years ago or seven years ago, we brought probably the highest rated pizza talent in the US yes. to the mill in Naples. And we told the Caputos uh, and their main millers, these guys, these Americans are gonna be the ones to tell you what they need in order to make traditional US style pizza. Yeah. 
So instead of you giving us a flower, they're going to tell you what we're looking for yeah. in terms of characteristics and performance. And now you're going to you're going to you're going to mill something to that. I remember spec. when that happened, and, and, and uh, the result is the Americano. The Americano right? is the yeah. result. Americano, Americano, super resulted now from Did, that. Does and the influence go the other way too? Do the Italians take? Uh, the Italian restaurateurs and operators learn from this side of the pond and apply as, as an American influence and happening over there, do you think? I don't. I think the Italians, when it comes to food, are a little more closed-minded and they, they only trust themselves. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you can understand why. And, yeah. And listen, you, got, you go to Ferrari and you tell them what they should do with their cars. Okay? <laughs> right. Good luck. <laughs> Fred, it's been great talking. I've learned so much, you know, hearing... Uh, the, the evolution of the company and the yeah. products and and even this uh, I had no idea uh, of the this long milling technique that you were describing that uh, it, it's almost like you were describing you, that you end up getting a stone ground flour but using a roller pr- process yeah you just uh, again we just find that you know going more slowly treats the final product better maybe that difference is extremely subtle you asked me before what's the difference between italy and maybe other countries when it comes to food i would say it's the difference between italy and other countries when it comes to a lot of things not just food but specifically within food it's the designing the process to give the possibly absolute maximum best result you can get independent of the cost and the yield First, it's what's the best it could possibly be. Yeah. We will get a process to get there. That's cool. That's the Italian culture. And if that's something that's something we can all learn from on this side as well. And I think it, 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 the effect has happened because we see people on this side. Uh, I, when I talk to my students, my baking students, I tell them that, that their mission is to evoke the full potential of flavor trapped in the grain. And they, and they do that by applying the craft of, you know, and the, and the things. And where do you learn that craft? You learn it from people who have already done it. And, and obviously, the folks over in Italy have been doing it longer than we have. So, Keep spreading the word, Peter. All right. Well, thanks again, Fred. Thanks for, for all your support, both for our, our show, but also for this industry. Because uh, I know that a lot of the events at, at previous pizza expos and things that I've been to, uh, the, some of the highlights for people, even your competitors, is hanging out with the, with the Orlando folks at the various uh, events. And we learn from each other, and, yeah. and, and I certainly have. This is a great industry for sharing. I re- it really is. And we've always told, again, talking with competitors, what's good for one of us is good for all of us. Yeah. If we can continue to educate the Americans on higher quality foods, it's good for everybody. I agree. So we've been listening to Fred Mortati of Orlando Foods. Thank you for being with us. Thank all of you for listening to Pizza Quest. Come back. We're going to be. We're still at the Pizza Expo Northeast, the, the Atlantic City version, not the Las Vegas version. We're going to try to get out there uh, in in March to get, do more of these kinds of interviews. But uh, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be playing uh, some podcasts from. Uh, other people who are here at the show and uh, hopefully if, if I can learn as much from them as I learned from you in this hour uh, I'm going to leave here with a, uh, an expanded repertoire of, uh, of things maybe maybe a new book idea who knows you never know <laughs> thank you Peter. and thanks all of you we'll see you at the next episode of Pizza Quest thanks again to Lloyd Pans for sponsoring this episode of Pizza Quest learn more about Lloyd Pans at lloydpans.com That's L-L-O-Y-D-P-A-N-S dot com. That's it for this episode. If you want to hear more of our coverage from the Northeast Pizza and Pasta and Baking Expo, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Pizza Quest is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.